welcome to Edie's Sustainable Business Covered podcast for a special edition marking Engagement Week 2022. Coming up on today's podcast, the Innocent Drinks team give their learnings on translating sustainability jargon. The Advertising Association CEO, Stephen Woodford, discusses how the meaning of responsible advertising has shifted in the net zero transition. And Hubbub CEO Truin Resterick reflects on eight years of experience delivering behaviour change campaigns. Yes, a big welcome to this edition of ED's long-running Sustainable Business Covered podcast, which is being broadcast as part of our Engagement Week 2022 campaign. By Engagement Week, we don't mean that everyone's popping the question and showing off their new rings on the gram, although it is getting to that time of year, really. Um, We mean that we've dedicated a week of our content and events to the ever-important topic of sustainability reporting and communications. You're listening to the voice of Sarah George, ED's senior reporter, and I'm joined virtually for the introduction of today's episode by ED's content editor, Matt Mace. A very good morning to you, Matt. How are you doing? Morning. Yes. Yeah, very, very well. Feeling very engaged, which I suppose that not in the the physical sense that you just mentioned, um, (laughs) but in the uh, just feel much more connected uh, to the sustainability kind of agenda and movement after weeks like uh, weeks like this. So, yeah, feeling good. Yeah, it's been a super busy week this week. We've put on videos, articles, online sessions and published reports all about engaging different kinds of stakeholders. Um, I was going to ask you how you found the week, but you've just said that you found it engaging. It is nice to have such a good audience to connect with. But I guess that, yeah, in the COVID era and the digital era, it can be hard to to feel that 24-7. No, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's so easy just to kind of go through waves of of like disconnect and then connection in that sense sometimes I'm like very talkative able to kind of meet people and the other times I'm kind of like a golem smeagol hybrid where I'm like <laughs> muttering to myself in the corner whilst trying to get meet deadlines so uh, this is one of those weeks where I'm not quite uh, quite dipping into that void which is nice no we need to channel away from that energy for the next hour um or so and um as i've mentioned we've dedicated time this week to content about engaging all different kinds of stakeholders from employees to customers um to competitors to peers to uh, to suppliers and if we were to go through each of these groups this could easily be a whole day event rather than a one hour podcast Um, So with that in mind, we are focusing on engaging the general public for this episode. So for business and brands, this is a consumer comms centric episode. Um, And it was nothing short of great timing that as I was planning the guest speakers for this episode, the Innocent Drinks team got in touch to tell me that they were taking over Trafalgar Square um, and that members of their marketing and sustainability team were going to be on site as they were showcasing a rewilded garden feature, complete with a new lion for the square made entirely of plants. So the first interview for this episode comes to you live from that event in London, which took place on Wednesday, so the 27th of April. Yes, hello. Um, So for this podcast, I'm going to start off with a segment live from London, where I'm in Trafalgar Square, and there is one more lion than usual. 
um, here today. He's walked in overnight, he's made of flowers and adorned with oranges, um, and he's here for a new campaign from Innocent Innocent Drinks, um, good friends of Edie. Um, so I'm sat here in Trafalgar Square at Portable Innocent HQ, Innocent Van, um, with some of the Innocent team to learn a little bit more um, about about why this is here today. So it'd be great to start with an introduction to each of the three Innocent team members that I have here today. Hi there, so my name is uh, Simon Reed, and I'm Head of Sustainability for Innocent Drinks. Hi, my name's Kirsty Hunter and I look after the marketing team at Innocent Drinks. Hi, I'm Sam Akinluyi. I'm the Managing Director for the UK and Ireland at Innocent Drinks. Great. Well, thank you all for taking the time out of your morning um, today. I guess it would be good to just get a recap, really, as a B Corp um, and as a brand that does so much marketing and comms about this, about how the sustainability team and marketing team and managing teams actually work together. Uh, we work very well together and my colleagues are nodding which is always good um, but uh, you know as a purpose-driven business um, and, and people on the planet being absolutely the heart of that it's really important these three teams work really hand in hand um, and are really supportive and collaborative around how we you know build our business and, and create wider change uh, within the marketplace as well. Yeah absolutely and you know from a sustainability perspective it's been amazing having the you know the power of our of our marketing uh, team behind this and it's really helping to amplify some of the the great work that we're doing around um, around climate and and supporting biodiversity and, and as Kirsty said it's been a real team effort um, I think I don't know how many emails have been sent about this it's been two years in the coming um, but just really really excited to be here today and seeing it seeing it live. Um, and excited to have you. And so just just to recap, so we're here today for a couple of launches that are taking place. Um, firstly, there's a new carbon neutral orange juice um, from Innocent, but more importantly, that is made possible by a big new environmental stewardship program called the Big Rewild. And everyone's here with like Big Rewild t-shirts on, they have little flowers on the pockets. Um, and from what I understand, um, Big Root Wild is all about restoring and conserving nature um, for the good of climate and obviously the nature itself. So I wanted to get a view on why this event is a good way to communicate those schemes. We've got lots of people milling in and out, taking photos, all kinds of people, retired people, office people, people with kids. Um, so it'd be good to hear a little bit more about how yeah, the location and the format were put together for today to help get that message across. Yeah, just to your point, that's exactly why we did it. There's so many people walking past an area that they're so familiar with. They walk past it sometimes every day, and now they're stopping. Um, commuters, tourists, and we're able to tell them about this message of rewilding, which not many people actually know what that means. Um, so this idea of giving areas back to nature, what a better a place to show that we can give certain areas that you would never even have expected um, back to nature and that's why we're doing it here we're not just doing it here we're doing it across Europe but this is our start, almost our starting point for the campaign that makes sense and I know that there's some pot plants and seeds for people to take home so I was going to ask how do we get this going beyond today but I guess that's part of it encouraging people to rewild their own gardens and communities absolutely this is just the launch and I think when when we're we believe in this a lot and, and when this is just the launch but we're doing this in London in the UK we're going to be doing this in Manchester we'll be doing it in Swansea we're doing it in Glasgow but yes we're giving away three million seeds today we're giving hundreds of hundreds of plant pots and we're just making it really easy for people to go home and 
contribute and take part and be part of the rewilding and they can go to our website and and get involved there as well at thebigrewild.co.uk great and will there be anything on pack alongside the website or are you going for sort of web-based at the moment uh, we're communicating it across all our orange juice formats as well. Uh, we've got quite a strong um, we've got a bottle here, which we're just all pointing at just now. Um, we've also got a strong um, social and web-based um, uh, communication as well. So obviously, uh, Sam just mentioned the website that we've got, and then we're going to have a lot of social content as well. Really encouraging people to get out there and rewild and share some of the rewilding stories uh, that they've got with others as well. And then we've got some outdoor and we've got some TV work again, just really promoting people to get out there and take some action. And you guys have mentioned the importance of getting people to understand rewilding even is. I feel like because I write for sustainability, sometimes I do this. I must bore everyone in the pub. I'm in the pub and I'm like, mm, carbon offsetting, uh, rapid EV charging, uh, TCFD, ESOS. But I was also looking at um, jargon as well around carbon neutral. So obviously, as part of the Big Rewild, the orange juice is going to be branded as carbon neutral. So I was Googling carbon neutral um, and some of the suggested searches meaning that people often google this when they're looking around these terms include is being carbon neutral good and does carbon neutral actually mean anything um, so Simon maybe this is one for you but it would be good to talk about how this product is actually carbon neutral so this combination of reducing emissions in-house and and rewilding so what that journey has been like yeah absolutely no welcome to the wonderful world of carbon uh jargon right there's a, a lot of different terms out there for um for us at innocent i think what's really important is to to highlight that any you know uh, carbon reduction program or program on climate action needs to really focus first on on reducing emissions and so um that piece around having a, a solid science-based target in place as well as lots of different initiatives in place to reduce emissions so for us, one of the things we've been doing recently is we've launched our um, our new carbon neutral factory over in Rotterdam. So it's around how we can actually take concrete action um, to reduce emissions. And what we've actually done for our orange juice is we're working with an organization called South Pole. And we are using their climate neutral product logo, which means that they've come in, they've looked at all of our carbon numbers for our orange juice and um, they've, they've verified that we've got the right sort of systems and processes and, and checks in place and we're then going to be purchasing the equivalent amount of carbon from offsets that we're going to be creating through uh, making our orange juice um, so that we get to a point where we are um, where we're carbon neutral mm-hmm. and is that i'm assuming nature-based offsets yeah absolutely no there's there's a, a whole bunch of different ways to offset but but for us as a brand we feel that um, you know nature-based offsets protecting and restoring whether that's orchards here in, in, in the UK or um, forests more globally, is really uh, a really important thing um, to do. We know from uh, what the IPCC are saying that we need to support nature. We need to invest more heavily in, in, in nature and um, make make sure that trees are worth more, you know, standing up than they are chopped down. And so, um, uh, yeah, that's uh, a key part of what we're, we're doing here today. And I wanted to ask for your views on how brands can help under, un, overcome this this carbon jargon. So do you think most people will be looking for, for example, a third party verification on pack like the South Pole one or something a bit more detailed? Yeah, absolutely. No, I think brands have an important role to play. And I think we need to, to work together with whether that's other brands, other 
um, organisations, people like the Science Based Targets Initiative, but also regulators as well, mm -hmm. to make sure that there are really clear definitions around things like um, carbon neutral, net zero, and, and all of those sorts of phrases. So yeah, we absolutely have a, a, an important role to play. And we can also, through initiatives like this, really bring that message to, to, to a wider audience as well. Great. Um, obviously, yeah, we don't want another alphabet soup <laughs> or a proliferation <laughs> of different things that people don't understand. Um, I'd like to take a step back from some of the in-depth jargon um, and go back to messaging and adverts because anyone that's here will probably know that um, Innocent is well known for its its advertising, definitely the on-pack tone of voice and and design is different. I've seen it called wackaging um, in The Guardian, which I think is a really fun word. Um, and then more recently, obviously, for the work that the social media um, teams are doing, it's a bit tongue in cheek. It's very conversational and very quick to reply. Um, so I wanted to get your view on how that can be used to communicate sustainability at this moment in time, because obviously we're speaking, I think, for the first time in 2022. Um, the year hasn't got off to the start that I think a lot of us were hoping for. Um, so how do you make good and lively sustainability comms at this moment in time? I mean, the Big Rewild is a classic example of how we do that. And just touching on the conversation you were just having there with Simon, there is so much jargon around there and for the average person on the street. And I put myself as that person. How, how do we make that easy? Because if we don't make that easy, I think it'll limit the action that we take as individuals as well. So one thing's I think the real beauty of the tone of voice of, of Innocent is we do it in a very natural, open way. We never profess to be anything else. We, we do it in a way that means I can talk to you, like I would talk to somebody down in the pub as well. Maybe not yourself, but <laughs> somebody else. And um, so programmes like the Big Rewilds enable us to do that. And, and the simple premise of just getting back to nature and the importance of nature you know, we take we take from nature through the fruit and the veg that we use in our products as well. How do we make sure we give back to nature as well? And 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 that simple message is a start point. It's just mm. a really easy message for people to engage with and connect with as well. Can I just add to that? I think with with things like the climate crisis, the ecological crisis we find themselves in, they feel so overwhelming to to yeah. to mostly everyone. You know, like what can you actually do? And I think um, to Kirsty's point, things like the big rewild. Uh, sort of tangible examples about what people can do and again if you go to our website you can find more examples of you know s small steps small actions that we can all take to uh, to make a difference in in this space i think it's also an easy and, and fun mm -hmm. and, and you can see the people like smiling enjoying themselves being surprised but i'm also thinking about you know my nine-year-old and my five-year-old when you talk to them about rewilding what they can do you don't want it to seem like it's something that's really hard and while we have to there's a scale there are the science-based targets there's the technical element of it but it's also showing that it's really accessible and it can be fun it can be something that's not just great for the planet but it's great for your own well-being and your enjoyment as well my um, benchmark just now is my 13 year old daughter who right. actually managed to get out so anybody that's been or has experienced a teenage daughter actually you know Easter I just, we, we got outside and we, we were actually planting some strawberry plants and it was just it was lovely to connect get ourselves outdoor it's nothing better than getting your hands in mud and dirt and and just being at one and I, I think it's just such a simple thing to do that can make such a big difference yeah, I, I'm kicking myself for not having some stats to hand now, but there's been a, lo a lot of research done over COVID about how we now revalue nature and we want to connect yeah. to the local 
um, community and how ultimately sitting and getting too much in your head will make you more anxious and that by acting you can help overcome that so I think that's a really nice note to end this recording on um, so thank you so much for having me down to Trafalgar Square today you're welcome thank you. thanks for having us Thank you once again to the Innocent team for having me along to their event. Um, they also stayed on after that recording for an interview about how the brand is moving forward after the recent ruling that one of their TV ad campaigns contained greenwash. So watch this space for a written follow up on ed.net very soon. Matt, I know you couldn't come along on Wednesday. You were busy covering for me while I was off drinking smoothies. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to get your general view on seeing these pop up events. So as you mentioned, we're starting to get out and about. Um, a bit more and and to 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 see them. So for, for me, obviously, for sustainability, it's a good way to make it fun, to make it engaging, to bring people together. But then on the other hand, people said, oh, it's only one day. Is that worth it for the footprint of the event? So I don't know if you have any pressing thoughts on these yeah, pop up events for sustainability that we keep seeing more of. I, I think, yeah, I, I certainly and that was my first, I suppose, thought came into my head when, when you kind of say that these pop-up events are that they do have a, a big footprint for, for essentially one day. But um, it's, and you can measure that, you can measure that, and that's always going to be a kind of cost, I suppose, if you're going to have a pros and cons column, that's always going to go in the con column. But you can't quite necessarily measure the, the, the value that those type of events do have in a traditional sense, because um, sustainability needs to be more kind of fun and engaging because what it's doing is responding to an extremely important extremely kind of worrying uh problem in the climate crisis which uh, there's you know there's so much research out there about the kind of uh, anxiety that that's causing um the mental health issues and then obviously the physical kind of displacement issues we're seeing in uh, kind of the developing world as well the climate crisis is 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 horrible it's not fun um and a lot of the way that i suppose the public gets their their news about this is through those kind of headline ipcc reports where it's like you know the window of opportunity is fast closing we're in a kind of almost irreversible um, slide towards a, a you know degraded planet basically and um, there are a lot of individuals and a lot of businesses that are trying to play their part in alleviating that by you know helping reach that 1.5c uh, limit on, on average temperature rises and even sustainability at its crux can come across as a bit kind of not patronizing but a, a, you know in, in the grand sense it's like you know um, eat less meat fly less travel less it's kind of very imposing which it has to be um and it's a transition that does have to be that but there's no reason that sustainability can't be kind of more fun and engaging and visual and kind of i suppose visceral in the message that it puts along and, and i think that's a really important way of doing it the, the message is important the actions are important but the way that you kind of articulate that and showcase that can be entertaining uh and educational in that sense so I, I certainly think there's a place for it um and i'm sure innocent you know took steps to kind of mitigate the, the impact of those those type of events as well yeah so we did cover in the interview how they're going to be going beyond that so obviously something we will be keeping an eye on so from something that was for one day only to something that is now for a lifetime and follows us around all the time, the advertising industry. Um, so within my lifetime, and I'm not quite at the big 3-0 yet, um, we've gone from only having adverts on TV and radio or when we go out in public places to being bombarded with them through our smartphones and our tablets and our laptops. 
on streaming services, on websites and on our social media. By some estimates, the average person in the global north is now seeing around 6,000 adverts a day, up from 500 a day in the 1970s. And we all know that advertising can be used for environmentally harmful ends, like convincing people who don't need an SUV that they really want one, um, like convincing people that Exxon is really investing big into green energy jobs, or selling fast fashion to people with wardrobes that are already bursting at the seams. So when it comes to sustainability communications, perhaps one of the most loaded but necessary debate questions you can ask is, can advertising ever be a force for good? And by that, I mean in an environmental sense. So to help me start to begin to tackle that question, I booked in some time with the Advertising Association CEO, Stephen Woodford. Stephen has been with the association since 2016. As well as summarising his thoughts on how the meaning of responsible advertising has evolved in the past six years, Stephen is on hand to give us an update on the association's flagship Ad Net Zero campaign and also to give his views on the recent spike of cases in regulator rulings against businesses on the grounds of greenwashing in their adverts. So let's play that discussion in full. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today, Stephen. How are you today and whereabouts are you dialing in from? Uh, I'm very well, thank you very much. And I'm in my office in central London, one of only two people in, in a very quiet, as Mondays have turned into very quiet days, most people are at home. So uh, I'm glad to be in the office. Yeah, we've just we've just said this, that essentially now that it's sort of hybrid working for a lot of people, that Monday and Friday definitely seem to be. Yeah. 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 I like to start. I'm a creature of habit, so I like to start the week by being in the office and getting my mind in the in the work frame of mind, which I've struggled to at home. So uh, yeah, I like being here. Totally understandable. And thank you for taking the time out of your Monday um, for for the call. Um, and obviously, we're here to talk about communications. Um, so I thought, where better to start for consumer-facing communications than with the advertising association? Um, so I thought it'd be good to do a sort of look back at responsible advertising and that kind of movement. Um, I've got in my notes, Stephen, that you joined the association in 2016. Um, so maybe it would be helpful to look back at what responsible advertising meant um, then and and what that means now in, instead. It's a, it's a really good question because in 2016 when I joined, certainly environmental issues were, you know, you, there was an awareness of them, but they weren't anything like as uh, central as they are now. And I suppose responsibility then is sort of like responsibility for the last, I don't know, 60 or more years in, in UK advertising. You tend to define it in terms of uh, the ASA codes that govern the business. So the Advertising Standards Authority, uh, legal, decent, honest and truthful. All advertising has to conform with those rules. So I've been in advertising for 40 odd years. So everything you do, you know, you have to conform with those ASA rules in terms of the content itself. So the claims you make and the statements you make in the advertising have to submit to those codes. And if you break those codes, as we'll come on and talk about in relation to environmental claims a bit later, um, you have quite a stiff sanction against you. So 2016, like it would have been in you know, 1976, or so it would it, it would have it would have been still about being legal, decent, honest, and truthful. But sustainability itself was quite a low profile issue there uh, in in 2016. There were other there were other things that were more prominent um, at that time. 
That's really interesting to hear because when we talk to in-house sustainability managers at the, the companies that, you know, will be advertising the product or the service, they often say the same, that it used to be a sort of compliance only um, function right. or compliance plus a bit of charitable giving. Um, and now people want a lot more information about a far broader scope of things. And I think one of the things that, you know, we, we talk to people around the world on this subject. And I think one of the things that's been very helpful in the UK is the lead that government has set by in a sense putting this so high up the political agenda that has pushed it up you know high up the news agenda and up the corporate agenda and up the consumer agenda and one of the things that certainly in the time i've been here that's become increasingly prominent part of uh, advertising and branding and marketing more generally is the sense of corporate purpose you know purpose-driven marketing mm -hmm. what is the purpose beyond you know making returns for shareholders and, and uh, uh, selling your products and services creating jobs and wealth and all the things that business does you know people are looking for higher purpose and i think that's a sort of been a drive that's probably started maybe 10 12 years ago that sense of purpose driven brands um, and it's become more and more prominent and then as that purpose uh, element has become more and more pro prominent that you know consumers' expectations of business have been raised too. So there's been a sort of symbiotic uh, relationship, I think, between government setting very high standards for around environmental transformation you know, by putting it into law. You know, we were the first big country, I think, to put 2050 a net zero economy into the law. Uh, uh, and then across the piece, I think that's been uh, a very helpful background context to raise awareness of these things. So. You know, when brands are talking and, and in their advertising talking about purpose, uh, it might well have been uh, around, if you think about dirt is good for person, which is probably the most prominent early purpose brand, that was about the benefits for children for playing outside, you know, getting their knees and clothes dirty. Um, but now, you know, Unilever, uh, as, a, as a really good example, has been very much around making sustainability every day. So in all, in all their products and services that they're offering, they're looking to, to, to drive sustainability. So you know, purpose can be other things other than sustainability, but I think it's been, become increasingly, sustainability has just become something that every brand and business is, is looking at in their own business. Uh, and to varying degrees, it's reflected in the, in the advertising they're doing. And and you mentioned, obviously, one of the big drivers of that has been change in sort of where this sits in government um, agenda. And you mentioned net zero, which is something I wanted to come on to. Um, flicking back in our ED archives, I think the last time we spoke to the association was about ad net zero. Um, so it would be great to catch up about that and, and find out what that's been up to over the past year. Um, also, but yeah. I'm aware that not everyone will know what ad net zero is, Stephen. So if we could start with a little explainer as well, that would probably well, yeah. be so, so ad net zero is a program for the advertising industry to help you know, help businesses in our in our industry to get to net zero by 2030. So uh, it's a sort of broad industry coalition, all of the very large companies that are involved in the industry. So the big advertising agency holding companies, the big commercial media owners, the, the, the big platforms like Google and, and the platforms that Meta own, uh, you know, all of those big companies uh, and some large advertisers and then all the trade bodies around the 
advertising industry are, are engaged in that debt series. Now over 100 uh, organisations that have committed to the this, you know, this roadmap to get us to 2030. And it's primarily focused on the operations of the advertising business. So, you know, the, the footprint of the businesses themselves, but particularly the production, which has a big footprint because there's a lot of travel and energy used in, in the production of advertising material. Even more so in the commercial media, if you think about the distribution and consumption of you know, billions of commercial impacts across the media ecosystem. Uh, and then most importantly, the last action is about the communication itself and the messaging in that communication. Because as our economy increasingly turns to more sustainable products and services, what we will tend to see is the advertising investment will tend to lead that. And, I, and a, an example I cite quite often is, is the car market, where I think one in six cars now being sold are electric or hybrid vehicles. I think about one in four of the new car models on sale are uh, hybrids or EVs. But, but the advertising investment, I think, is probably more like 40% of the ad spend, because, of course, all the manufacturers and all the brands are shaping their business about where their business is going to be. So by 2030, there'll be no petrol and diesel cars on sale. Uh, certainly in the UK and, uh, and many other markets are following that 2030 deadline. So they're, begin they're, they're shaping their business around uh, where it's going to be, obviously driving that consumer uptake of EVs. But then you could go, for, you know, it's obviously a very large pro purchase that people might wait once in you know, every three, four, five years. Um, and then those new cars will work their way through the market. They'll become somebody's secondhand car. And it'll, you know, the, the car market churns about every 14 or 15 years, is the lifetime of the average car. So you, know, you can see by, say, I don't know, 2045, 90%, 95% of the cars on the road will be EVs. So, um, you know, with all the implications that has for you know petrol sales and uh, etc. But then, but then you think about an everyday market like um, food, and you look at I was driving past a Morrison's supermarket yesterday, and outside outside the supermarket on all the, the posters around it, it was talking about Morrison's plant-based meals. Yeah, so all the supermarkets are now talking about meat substitutes. And you know, and, and I think a terrific thing about these sort of things is that it's just everyday purchases. You know, and if, and if you know, two or three meat choices can be switched to plant-based choices in the average household shopping basket, that's a massive uh, potential carbon footprint. So there are lots of these small changes as well as the big changes like what sort of car you drive. So I think we'll see that increasingly across the board. Or, Detergent manufacturers, you know, talking about personal, talking about washing at lower temperatures, and energy companies talking about their sustainable tariffs, uh, switching consumers to to sustainable tariffs, and and so on and so forth. So you see it across the whole economy, uh, the, the the trans, you know, the, the the sort of transition towards more sustainable choices about everything that we use and consume. Of course, and we see this with a lot of industry actions that the pathway to the net zero for the operations of the industry um, will likely have less of an impact than the communications, the, the ripple effect that comes with it, the supply chains, things like that. Um, and you've mentioned there are some good ways that some brands are as as the fifth and final action of the net zero, add net zero um, 
point says it says to harness our power to support consumer behavior um, change so you've talked about how car makers are putting EVs out there and some people will see those adverts for a few years before they make the plunge um, some supermarkets showing that this is a small change that is around the same cost that you can just do day to day um, but in your experience what are some other ways to get people to change behaviors using using ads because I feel like some of them for example wash at 30 <laughs> they don't necessarily always stick Well, I think I think the um, I think the interesting thing here is the you know, the, the pace of change is that goes market by market and brand by brand, um, and and clearly you know all the businesses in those various markets will have their own pathways to their own net zero plans and so on, and will set their own deadlines and things like that. So that that will be happening. I, 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 I'm increasingly of the view that there's a role here for government to be, you know, we've, we've set a very ambitious target for the economy that requires you know, dramatic change in the way that we live and the way that our economy works. Uh, and when you look at research data, you know, the, the public don't expect to be bearing the cost of that. And they don't particularly want to be bearing the cost of that through much, much higher taxes. Uh, you know, for all the obvious reasons there, that that, that it, there's not enough tax revenue really in the economy to sub, you know, to, to pay for the cost of the transition. So it has to be business. It has to be business investing and changing and bearing the cost of that and doing it in a sense just by doing the normal business. You know, those car companies are not, um, uh, I mean, obviously the cars are more expensive now because they're lower production volumes, but they will come, you know, scale and innovation will drive down the price and competition will drive down the price. So consumers, I think, expect, in effect, businesses to change uh, so that they can be provide, you know, they can provide choices that uh, are more sustainable. Just in the, you know, but they don't expect to pay more. Uh, and I think that's that's the big challenge that, that I see businesses, you know, we, 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 we see a huge amount of different business across the advertising sector because also advertising touches pretty much every consumer facing business. And I don't see any business phased by that. You know, this, this is this is in effect the environmental change, smallly if you like, that, that we're change, that we're making because the and this is going back to that regulate the, the legislation point. By changing the goalposts, by putting a, a, a line in the sand that we all have to be at this point by 2050. That, that's, you know, for some businesses, they can do it by 2030 or 2035. Uh, some, it's much, much more difficult. But, I, you know, even the most carbon intensive businesses, I think, are setting deadlines ahead of 2050 because they don't want to be laggards and they are increasingly looking for competitive advantage as this becomes an increasingly important consumer driver, you would want to be seen as the company that is making the running and, and being, you know, a leader and, and uh, getting the, you know, the, the, the reputational benefits of being seen to be on the right side of this, uh, of, of this challenge. I think I've got an email that this week there are some government hearings about the role of, yeah, just that um, lifestyle and behavioural changes in reaching um, net zero after recent reports from the IPCC and CCC said, well, you know, um, th this will involve changes to the way that 
as we've said, the way that we do our laundry, the way that we eat, the way that we shop, the way that we use our yeah. transport. Um, but I did want to come back as well to something that you mentioned earlier. So you mentioned the the rush for purpose led um, business as as well yeah. and something as well. This is where a lot of people say that maybe there's a greater role for government here. So not only to make the change behaviours easy and affordable, um, but to make sure that they're being communicated properly. Um, so it's been clear in recent months that greenwashing is a real and growing problem. Um, companies have had rulings made against their ads. Um, the CMA has outlined a green claims code. So I wanted to get your view on what the role is for the Advertising Association to help address greenwashing through AdNet Zero and, and whether the government should do, be doing more than simply the green claims code, perhaps. Well, I, I think uh, one, we've already got a very uh, effective regulation in place with the ASA and, they, uh, and their codes are absolutely aligned with the CMA codes. So they work hand in glove on, 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 on that. So in effect, the ASA is the enforcer when it comes to those claims and that's where people complain to and you know, they investigate the claims and they upheld, uphold a number of them. Um, but I would, I would, the, the point I would amplify that I started on earlier on is that no business sets out, certainly here in their advertising, to try and bend or break the rules. Businesses do occasionally break the rules, but it's a tiny fraction. When you, when you look at the numbers, yes, they're going up, but as a percentage of claims, it's, it's impossible to say what percentage is because we don't know the total universe of, of ad messages out there, but it's going to be a fraction of 1%. Because the reputational damage to you know, any business, whether it's an airline or a car company or an energy company of having a claim upheld against you, is just not worth, if you like, the fractional, you know, even if you said, well, we'll just get a slightly more ambitious claim through here than we would have, than perhaps we would. You know, the upside of that versus the reputational downside is completely outline you know you do not want and, and you certainly do not want to have a series of complaints upheld against you there are one or two advertisers that that um over the years have had a high number of complaints against them not just about environmental claims but about all sorts of claims and there's um i mean ryanair is a really good example they they um have had you know they, they tend to um get quite a lot of complaints upheld against them but that's because they you know i think they probably deliberately push the boundaries of the claims that they make across the board, not just on environmental, they had an environmental claim uh, upheld against them, or complaint upheld against them. Um, but with, with you know, most businesses uh, and their agencies and all the people advising and working with them, you know, want to be very clear that they're on the right side of the rules, because the reputational damage of being seen to be breaking the rules is, is not worth any the perceived upside that you might get from a slightly more ambitious claim. So, and, it, and I think there's often a sort of sense of you know, dark arts or conspiracy theories or people are bending the rules and all those sort of things. It's almost always a mistake or somebody being slightly overambitious with a claim or the claim not being properly checked through or cleared properly. As an example, when you know a claim goes onto TV, if you make any claim in a claim a TV ad, the ad is pre-cleared at script stage and at final edit stage, and it's aired. But even then, occasionally, 
you know, a, a claim will be, or a complaint will be made and a complaint will be upheld against that advertiser and they have to amend that claim. So mistakes happen because, you know, people make mistakes. But the rules are very specific, they're very tightly drawn. They just, the whole guidance has just been reviewed again in line with the CMA code. It's kept, because this is such an important and highly contested area, the SA are incredibly vigilant on it. So there is no need for government action on this. We've got, you know, probably, you know, if around the world, the ASA is seen as the, as the best advertising regulator uh, in terms of its effectiveness and its comprehensive rule, uh, um, rulemaking abilities and the adherence to those rules. So there's no need for, for regulation on this. Where I think there is a really important role for government is driving the sense of that actually we can all make changes in our life and it's not about a hair shirt lifestyle or having a you know a, a, in some way less of a enjoyable and, and pleasurable life that we have currently you know, we can still have very rich fulfilling lives uh, but but we just need to make more conscious choices about about the footprint of those choices that we make so you know, we don't need to be everybody to become when you look at the the changes in people's behaviors that need to happen to achieve the sort of 1.5 degree degree pathway the whole world does not have to become vegetarian you know we just need to eat less meat we don't have to never fly again we just need to fly less and fly in a more conscious way and offset it and the airline industry needs to transition to sustainable ways of you know, powering jets so ultimately uh, i'm sure there'll be hydrogen powered jets in, in the next 20 years or whatever so etc you know it, this is not about going back to some medieval way of living we can have a we can have a you know a, a good because again in, in the west ultimately parties have got to be elected on, on and nobody gets elected to say we're going to make your life worse and poorer um, so these are about making you know so putting this in context you don't have to change your life completely but make these 10 there's you know 16 changes that if we all made in our fact the way we live our lives that are all everyday choices pretty much you know, the big one is choose move to a sustainable energy provider and then next biggest one is move to a sustainable you know move to electric vehicle as soon as you can afford it uh, and then the rest are just small choices you know, about how you live and how you, you know, the food you eat and the travel choices you make and et cetera, et cetera. Got it. So, Stephen, I'm afraid we're coming to the end of our call here um, today, but I've... Well, I've that's not that big way of ending the call. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I've summarised some of the points you have there for advertisers. So keep sustainability accessible, um, make it attractive and always, always triple check your claims. <laughs> Is yes, what I have absolutely. written down. Yeah, yeah, good rules of thumb, I'd say. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much for your time today on the podcast, Stephen. Pleasure. Great to talk to you. Yes, and thanks once again to Stephen for his time. So, a big focus on uh, yeah advertising for the first part of this podcast. We still have one more great guest interview to bring you, but we're going to take a super quick break first. Join us after the jingle for an exclusive chat with Hubbub's CEO and co-founder Truen Resterich, 
who reflects on eight years with the charity before he steps down to take on a new adventure. Hello and welcome back to the second and final part of this Sustainable Business Covered podcast episode, a special dedicated to engaging the general public with environmental topics. Matt, are we still here? Are we still gripped or have I failed miserably as host? No, no, still very much gripped and the, um, the, the, you know, the interviews we've had so far are perfect, topical, relevant um, and the ad, uh, advertising agency, um, uh, organization that I know well they kind of actually got in touch with us um, prior to the net zero strategy so to kind of I suppose have a chat and, and explain to us what they were doing and um, for for a sector that has so much influence on 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 the public it's great to see them stepping up as well. Yeah of course and after that first part heavily focused on advertising great update from the association we're now taking an angle more rooted in community collaboration and behaviour change science. So our third and final guest organisation for this episode is Hubbub, the environmental charity specialising in partnerships for the delivery of community level behaviour change campaigns. Um, I was I was hoping to have a brief. Oh, you probably know Hubbub for X, Y, Z, um, but they've done so much that different people probably know them for different things. Um, early fans will be aware of the voting bins for cigarette butts and aluminium cans. These have been popular at things like festivals. Um, so if they were at Glastonbury this year, people might be asked whether they prefer Billie Eilish or Olivia Rodrigo and asked to put their can on either of those sides. Um, other notable hubbub campaigns have included collaboration on Starbucks's single use cup charge um, and offering related plastic fishing trips on the River Thames the National Network of Community Fridges um, and Bright Friday, which is a fight back against fashion waste over the holiday season. So Truin, our final guest for this episode, co-founded Hubbub in 2014. And after eight years with the charity, he is shortly going to be stepping down to take on a new role. So it was good to catch up with him in London earlier this week, went over there shortly after seeing the Innocent team. And this interview chat serves as something of a reflection and a look forward plenty of learnings on delivering engaging and impactful campaigns. Yes, yeah, so moving on now from Trafalgar Square to another part of London, Somerset House, where I'm at Hubbub HQ. Um, for those who aren't aware of Hubbub, it's an environmental charity best known for, I wanted to say environmental communications, but it's more than that. It's collaboration, it's behaviour change, it's getting people mobilised. Um, and I'm here with their CEO and long-term friend of ED Turin. So thank you so much for having me along today. Well, lovely seeing you and thank, thanks for coming along. No, thanks thanks for, for having us. And I wasn't really sure where to start with this because there's such a wealth of places we could start. Um, Hubbub has so many learnings on communications, engagement, behaviour change. Um, but I'm aware that we're speaking a few months before you're going to be stepping down as CEO. Um, after several years, so I thought maybe a reflection would be a good um, a good place place to start. Um, I'm aware that Hubbub was first founded um, in in 2014, and obviously now, even though we're only a few years later, it feels in some ways like a completely different world. Um, so I'd love to get a, a view on your reflections on the state of yeah how people are engaged with environmental topics now versus back when you started Hubbub. Yes, I mean it's, it's eight years, which is. <laughs> Have flown by, um, yeah, and I, I set Hubbub up as a, as a bit of a bit midlife crisis, really late midlife crisis, I should say, 
um, because I was quite frustrated about the way that environmental issues were being communicated to the general public. So there was sort of a, the dark greens were really interested um, and were getting sort of like really detailed uh, information and were developing a language which was sort of not really open for others. And then the vast majority of the people at that stage, I think, were quite apathetic to environmental issues. And there was also quite a few who were quite antagonistic. But I think what's happened over the eight years has just been quite a remarkable shift. You've had, you know, things like uh, Blue Planet. So there's been whole conversations around plastics and the impact of plastics on the environment. You've seen a like, wealth of growth around vegan and, and the impact of our diet and vegetarian food on, on planetary issues. And then obviously with COP and other things, um, carbon has, has raised up the agenda. So yeah, the debate has progressed quite significantly, but I still think for a lot of people, it's something that's complicated. They don't really understand what the issues are, how they can make a difference. So although the conversation is built, I, I still think there's confusion amongst the public. Mm. Confusion is something we've been looking at in other parts of this this episode and other parts of the week, but something we've also been looking at, I think Matt probably more than me, is the culture wars, he's, yes. he's called it. Um, people getting a lot of misinformation about the intersections between the cost of living crisis and the environment, um, people perhaps caring more about the pandemic and their own family and keeping their own job and getting back on their feet than environmentalism. So have there been any learnings in that respect? So a sort of hyper 2022 context, really? Yes. Well, I mean, we actually think that the connection between social and financial challenges and the environmental debate are really closely interlinked. Um, so what we found is that, you know, because food prices are, are going up, people are way more interested in getting the most value from their food, cut, cutting the amount of food that they're wasting. Um, they're starting to look at how they can eat more healthily on, on a lower cost, and that tends to be sort of less meat and dairy in their, in their diet. Um, around things like uh, electronic waste, you know, we know e-waste is a vastly growing, um, but at the same time you have many, many people in the UK who are not connected digitally. Um, so you have this ridiculous situation where you have waste being thrown away, brilliant products, and on the other hand, people, you know, who desperately need those those, those devices and the data to help them get connected. So so we're always looking for that sweet spot between how you can tackle a big environmental challenge like e-waste, but also provide social benefit by getting those devices out to the people who need it with with training and data. So so. So we've sort of constantly now looking at, at how you can frame the environmental debate within the cost of living crisis. Um, and I think we're going to see a huge discussion around energy use in the UK. So real shift towards energy efficiency, but also a conversation about, you know, should we be dependent on sort of gas and, and coal and oil from countries like Russia? Of course, and I look forward to seeing what comes out on, on that. But I feel like I was just looking back at some of the the things that Hubbub's been working on, and you mentioned the importance of getting that social message um, and the environmental message, but not making it just a message, making it actionable, um, and how a lot of the times that means going at different parts of the system, so people that have waste electronics, people that need electronics. Um, and obviously one of the best ways to tackle this is to do collaboration. Um, and it would be fair to say that over the past eight years, Hubbub has partnered with a lot of organisations. I was looking through 
um, some of them, so philanthropy platforms, SMEs, so local takeaways, um, local councils, all the way up to really big businesses like McDonald's and Starbucks. So we probably have people listening that are looking to form good external comms, not only with people, but with other organisations, partners. Um, so I wanted to get your views on what the key ingredients are for a good partnership that's not just for, for partnership's sake. Yes, I, th- I think, I mean, the collaboration is at the heart of everything we do. And what we realise is that um, behaviour change campaigns are really important, but you have to make it as easy as possible for people to, to make the changes. So you not only need good communications, but you need the infrastructure around them that helps them to, to, to do basically what a lot of people want to do, but, but probably can't because of uh, inconvenience or cost. So I think for our collaborative projects, we always start off with a really clear objective. So let's cut food waste, let's boost recycling. Um, and they're messages that resonate usually with larger companies as part of their CSR strategies. We then do a lot of insights. So we do a lot of listening to, to where people are at so that we truly understand you know, what they'd like to see in their lives, what the barriers are. Um, and then that helps us create the campaigns which overcome those barriers. And then what we very quickly realise is that one organisation can't address all those barriers themselves. Uh, and also one organisation hasn't got the reach into all those communities or the authenticity mm-hmm. to go into those communities. Mm-hmm. So with projects, for example, like our community fridges, um, which retailers pass food that would have been thrown away, perishable food, to a fridge which is in the community setting. But those community fridges are run by local community groups which we recruit. So they have the authenticity to, to work with their community and to redistribute the food. Uh, and we bring the corporates in, into to that link so that they have an, somewhere they can take their food, which then can be uh, freely distributed to, to people in the local community. And I think the role we play uh, is, is we identify the, the problem, we bring the corporates on board, we listen to what people want, we're then a a catalyst that brings organisations together and then the other crucial bit is authentic communication so you know how can you prove to people that this is something that will make a difference to them that will make a difference to the environment and and is a genuine approach rather than sort of a greenwash washing a, a sort, of, sort of shine on on something that a business is trying to do so we bring all of those things in, into the mm. into the whole picture that's important that it's not just what you're saying it's who's saying it and it's not that you're just saying oh well you could do this recycle something by the way there's no bins yes exactly. <laughs> so good luck <laughs> yeah yeah exactly so thank you for those points on collaboration um and i wanted to touch on as as well obviously hubbub does some great work but you mentioned speaking at our sustainability leaders forum in london that that approach doesn't always get it right every time i remember hearing you talk about internal collaboration and communications um, and about how there is an open forum called F Up Fridays. Um, so you can sort of admit things that could have been improved in previous campaigns and partnerships and how they can be overcome. So I wanted to build on that and ask about your learnings on internal um, comms to get to that point, really. Yeah, I, th- I think the philosophy we had when we set up Hubbard was to, to to learn as fast as we could, to fail cheaply and, and then to to pick the best bits and, and go again. And and we also, I mean, if you listen to a lot of what businesses and government are saying, you'd think the climate crisis has been solved already because everybody's doing amazing things. And clearly the science shows that's absolutely not the case. 
Um, so we, we really had a view that, that, that we had to experiment, that we had to try new things because the existing approach isn't working. Um, and we also knew some of that would fail and that you probably learn as much through failure as you do through success. And we also felt that if we did fail, then we should tell everybody we failed and explain why so that perhaps others wouldn't sort of go down the same route. And it's, it's a lot easier for a small charity to admit failure than a big corporate. We totally accept that. Um, but it's something we've really tried to, to bring as part of the core of what we do and to, to encourage everybody here or the whole team to go and experiment and, and not be too afraid if some things don't work. And quite a few things we have tried really haven't worked <laughs> at all. Um, and I think we just have to put our hands up and say, well, we, you know, we thought it was going to, but, but really it didn't. Mm. And do you have to be like a behaviour change scientist or have sociologists to get this right? Or is it a case of, yeah, just thinking and engaging with communities and, as you say, looking at what their barriers are and who they trust? I, well, I, don't, I mean, yeah, I'm a, a very bad history graduate. Um, I don't think you do need... To, to sort of be a behavioural scientist to, to make it work because it, it's really about connecting with people and listening to, to to what they want to see change but what we do have there's an awful lot of proven academic research around behaviour change techniques like you know nudge and social norming so we have like an armory of seven different behaviour change techniques um, which we know and then we try and sort of match those against you know the different audiences and the different groups who are working and the other thing we really try and do is is use great design, but really positive messaging, playful messaging. You know, it's it, we, we've got to make this fun. We've got to make it engaging. We've got to make it practical. Um, so so we try and avoid all the doom and gloom. We try and avoid sort of the the barrier language like you know sustainability and biodiversity, and and just try and make it an open conversation with people. Great, that makes sense. And true, and I know we're running out of time here on this podcast and there's so many actionable tips that we've squeezed into our um, conversation. And I guess seeing as we started with a reflection, I guess the, the only way to end really would be to look ahead um, to the future. So we're recording late April. I'm aware you'll be stepping down in, in June, I believe. Um, are you able to tell us a little bit more about what you'll be up to post being Hubbub CEO or, or how they're choosing a new CEO? Yeah, so it's been an incredible, I mean, I set Hubbub up, so it's really weird to leave it, particularly when it's doing so well. Um, but but I felt, I was starting to see things come around again, so it was time to move on. Organisations can't be dependent on a founder, and we've got such an amazingly brilliant team here and you know, strong financial position. It was, it was a good time to leave, strangely. Um, and we've appointed uh, Alex Robinson, who's... Uh, been working within Hubbub and he officially takes over on the 1st of May and I'm sure be an absolutely amazing leader for the charity and then for me it's like oh what do I do now uh, getting on a bit um, but what I'm going to do I think is um, I, I want to re-envisage how we shop so uh, I basically want to create a circular store um, looking at everything from children's equipment, electronics, even sort of coffee shops, clothing, um, and just see whether all this talk about the circular economy, rental, repair, can you actually make that work? Do people want to do it? 
can you do it in a, in a way that, that makes a profit? Um, and just to run an experiment on a store or a big store, just to see what can happen and then to share all that we've learned with the other retailers to see if that they can transition much more quickly to low carbon circular models. Well, that's super exciting and I'm sure that will be no small feat. So I'm sure everyone listening will join me in wishing you the very best of luck. And thank you so much for your time on our podcast this week. It's been a pleasure. Nice meeting you, Sarah. Thanks once again to Turin, who was last but by no means least. And with that, that's the end of our guest interviews. If you've enjoyed today's episode, and we really hope you have, we encourage you to check out the rest of the content and events we have put on for Engagement Week 2022. You can do that by visiting our website, ed.net, and using the menu to select events, then Engagement Week 2022. There's a couple of pieces to particularly bring your attention to, the first one being our free downloadable handbook that we have just published. This handbook is all about accelerating climate action by engaging your key stakeholder groups. It outlines how organisations of all sizes and sectors can be clearer in their sustainability related marketing, engagement and comms, covering net zero, climate adaptation, ESG, biodiversity and the circular economy. This report is all about meeting key stakeholder groups where they are with the information they want most, providing inspiration and information, but never being patronising, something you talked about earlier, Matt. You can access the report at ed.net forward slash content forward slash download. That's ed.net forward slash content forward slash download. Another thing to flag up is the jewel in the metaphorical crown of this week, um, which was our online sessions that we hosted on Thursday, the 28th of April. We had a great array of speakers for these sessions, which were kindly sponsored by JRP Solutions and Carbon Intelligence. We had experts on board from Vodafone, Dentsu, Upfield, Crystal Doors, Auto Trader UK and Ashton. Starting with a big panel debate about overcoming greenwashing, that was followed by case studies on affecting behaviour change within an organisation. And the afternoon came to a close with a 45 minute masterclass on TCFD aligned reporting. But with all of that in mind, we're now wrapping up Engagement Week 2022. So, Matt, do you have any reflections from the week or perhaps anything you'd like to flag from the future? Um, I think a quick reflection on the week um, from that first session um, on kind of dispelling myths and, and, and uh, greenwashing. I think a really interesting conversation came up. One of the questions that was asked was, what, what do I do? I want to articulate a commitment to sustainability in a transparent way that doesn't fall foul of greenwash but we don't necessarily have the commitment the data the the, the science-based targets in place and and that that question kind of got some really good answers from the from the panels and I think what we uh, I think the way that Richard uh, from Crystal Doors put it was like that net zero is, is every business's kind of man on the moon moment you've got to pitch that commitment to, to get up there um, and everything else follows if you're not committed to net zero and there's no right or wrong way to commit to it as long as it's there you can you can do the groundwork first and say yes we are going to commit to net zero and we're currently looking at our data to set our science-based targets which some organizations are doing jrp solutions said that they're working with a few that are doing just that another way to do it is to say yep yeah, we're going to be net zero and we've seen this a lot and people commit to net zero by 2050 and then release kind of updates say okay yeah we've actually you know looked into this now and we've moved it forward x amount of years because we think we can i think net zero is the new kind of prerequisite to a responsible business now and that's going to negate a lot of a lot of greenwash so obviously there's more intricacies around 
offset and whatnot, which is a whole different debate and how you get to net zero. But but the commitment there is the first step to show that you're you're being serious. Uh, so that was my kind of key takeaway. And, and just to flag that we do have another one of these weeks coming up very shortly uh, in terms of circular economy week, which is taking place towards the end of May. I'm not sure if you're going to mention that, Sarah, but I will just say that there's going to be some info up on the site very shortly about that. It's going to be another week long uh, theme of content all around uh, embracing the circular economy. Very prevalent now, you know, the last couple of years, circular economy kind of didn't fall off the agenda, but kind of was lower down because of the pandemic and not many consumer facing opportunities to engage on the circular economy. That's certainly a big aspect of 2022 so far. Great. Well, yeah, we'll be bringing that to you towards the end of May and there'll be more information on the site. Um, and in the meantime, podcast wise specifically, this is the last episode for April. I can reveal that as well as a circular economy themed episode later in May, before that, we will have another episode with a special hydrogen theme. Um, a real hot topic in the net zero transition. You can subscribe to our podcast to make sure you don't miss either of those forthcoming episodes on any channel that you get your podcast. Really, we are on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes and Google Podcasts. You can also access our profile there to catch up on any of our previous episodes. Um, but for today's episode, we're bringing it to a close. So a big thank you to you for tuning in. So for now, it's a goodbye from Matt. Goodbye. And a goodbye from me. Goodbye.